This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author, actor, and playwright Wallace Shawn discusses his new book, Night Thoughts. Then PW Senior Editor Peter Cannon previews the most anticipated mystery and thriller titles for the fall. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by NPD Bookscan. What do we have on the nonfiction list, Mark? Well, we've got, I think, five titles, five debuts. We, the new one, new number one, Newt Gingrich's Understanding Trump, uh, and that's hit right up on top there. And then number 11, uh, one of my uh, personal favorites, uh, Hunger by Roxane Gay. We gave it a starred review. Uh, Roxane Gay is a novelist and cultural critic. She's uh, uh, the author Bad Feminist. It was one of her first books. Uh, writes of being morbidly obese in this absorbing and authentic memoir of her life as a woman of size. Her, her, her narrative is raw and graceful, and she digs deeply into what it means to be comfortable in one's body. And we say Gay denies that hers is a story of triumph, quote-unquote, but readers will be hard-pressed to find a better word. Uh, so that's at number 11. She's been getting a lot of press, and um, good for her. Really great. Uh, the next one, Eddie Izzard. Uh, Believe Me, a memoir of love, death, and jazz chickens. Uh, in our review, we say the beloved comedian, actor, and writer known for uh, partly for being an out transvestite who sometimes wears dresses, heels and lipstick on stage, shares intimate details about his life and is emotionally transparent throughout this splendid memoir. So uh, and, uh, Eddie Izzard has been on uh, quite a few shows recently as well. Most recently, I just saw him on Bill Maher. Um, then we have another memoir, this one at number 20, Sherman Alexi. You don't have to say you love me. This is an intense but soft-spoken feeling. Sophia uses the bittersweet relationship between a mother and her son in this poignant, conflicted, raucous memoir of a Native American family. We say that the text is rambling, digressive, and sometimes baggy, with dozens of his poems sprinkled in. It wanders along limpid, conversational prose, body comic tunes, and lyrical and cantatory verse. Uh, We say this is a fine homage to the vexed process of growing up that vividly conveys how family roots continue to bind even after they seem to have been severed. Finally, this is a cookbook that I had a feeling was going to land on the bestseller list. It's at number 21, Samin Nosrat's uh, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, Mastering the Elements of Good Cooking. And this is... Uh this is by Samin, who wrote Alice Waters a letter after eating a Chez Panisse and got a gig uh, bussing tables. This is way back when. And uh, she's uh, you know cook, she's a chef and, and obviously a cookbook writer. And uh, in this one, we say that in even measured tone, she explains how salt, even the shape of the crystals, can affect the dish's overall flavor as well as the specific proteins and how fat results in food's crispiness, how heat influences 
which is flavor by caramelization, and perhaps most importantly, how to balance all these elements when composing a dish or a meal. And uh, this is one of these books that just is, is, is kind of a philosophical cookbook and trying to incorporate all four of those, um, the, sal- the salt, the fat, the acid, the heat, and uh, we gave it a starred review. So I'm happy to see it on the list. And that came out in April. It came out about six weeks ago. So what do you think has it on the list now? Uh, this I'm not too sure. I haven't seen much. Uh, I haven't seen much in print, so I'm not too sure. The only thing I could think of is if perhaps this one got bumped uh, a pub date, but I'm not too sure. I'll have to look into that. It's a good question. Well, over on the hardcover fiction list, um, John Grisham is holding steady at number one mm-hmm. for the second week in a row. This week, it sold 95,000 copies, which is way better than most books do their first week out, and that's his second week showing. Mm. So um, everybody. Everybody wants that book. Mm-hmm. At number two, we have a, a debut. It's Tom Clancy, Point of Contact by mm-hmm. Mike Madden. Um, he's the author of Drone Threat and three other techno thrillers. And this one is a taut, exciting thriller, according to our review. It's an entry in the Jack Ryan Jr. division of the Tom Clancy universe. And this one is based on the seemingly mundane premise of a corporate audit. Uh, and accountants who turn out not to be accountants must outrace international assassins and a massive typhoon to thwart a global financial disaster. Mm. Uh, and our review says Clancy fans can rest assured that the state of the franchise is strong. Right. So uh, there's a little hat tip to the, the fans of uh, Clancy's books. Number six, we have The Identicals by Ellen Hildebrand. We don't mm. have a review of this, um, but it's uh, branded by the uh, publisher as a summertime story about identical twins who couldn't be any less alike. And it's got one of those lovely beach read covers. As we've seen this, um, you know, this time I just, of year. This is just a wonderful genre of, of cover. And this one is particularly well designed. It's got um, two, two people on a beach and their waistlines are precisely at the horizon mm. line. And it's just very visual appealing with a big umbrella. So, um, you know, if, if you do judge a book by its cover, um, you can certainly do worse than this book. Uh, moving down the list fairly far, number 17, The Black Elf Stone by Terry Brooks. This is the first book in the last quartet of the Shannara epic fantasy saga. Brooks has been writing these books for decades um they've become a hot tv property and you know this is he says he's finally going to wrap it up but i feel like i've heard that before <laughs> and somehow um yeah i mean the the, the running joke is you know, in the year 2050 we'll see telephone book of shanara but uh in this case um you know he's uh, he's found another way to pull another story out of uh this epic fantasy series uh our review says that this book uh works best for readers at opposite poles either series devotees who are conversing with the lengthy backstory mm-hmm. or newcomers who can focus on the three major plot threads of this particular installment. And the conclusion will have most readers eager for the sequel, so Brooks has not lost his touch. Right. Uh, just below that is The Rise and Fall of Dodo at number 18 uh, by Neil Stevenson and Nicole Galland. Uh, Stevenson is a best-selling author of science fiction, cyberpunk. Uh, his last book was Seven Eves. Uh, he's known for these big, giant doorstopper books, uh, and uh, this one is no exception. It's 768 pages, mm. uh, collaboration with historical novelist mm-hmm. Galland, and it's presented as five volumes of collected materials. This is sort of a metafictional exploration. Mm-hmm. It's got hand, 
handwritten journals, letters, printouts of PowerPoint presentations, white papers, and these materials all chronicle the establishment of Dodo, a black budget operation created to restore magic to the present through the application of science. And either you're the kind of reader who thinks that sounds really cool or you're not. But if you are, um, this is definitely one to pick up. Uh, Our review says it mixes quantum physics, witchcraft, and multiple groups with conflicting agendas, plus vernacular from several centuries and a dizzying number of acronyms to create a fascinating experiment in speculation and metafiction that never loses sight of the human foibles and affections of its cast. And finally, wanted to note that at number 20 is The Little French Bistro by Nina George. We also don't have a review of this one, uh, but it's, uh, according to the publisher, it's a novel about self-discovery and new beginnings. uh, And obviously, this is the author of The Little Paris Bookshop, and people will be very excited to see this new book out from her. And that's what we've got on the hardcover fiction list. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Wallace Shawn tells us about his deep thoughts and leaps of intuition. We'll be right back. I'm Matthew DeBoard, author of Return to Glory, the story of Ford's revival and victory in the toughest race in the world. And you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Wallace Shawn in the office with us. His new book is Night Thoughts. Wallace, I'm so glad you could join us. Thank you so much. So, um, night thoughts, are these thoughts that keep you up at night, or is night when you have that clarity of thought that makes you want to write your thoughts down? Well, I think in this case, the person, me, is alone in a hotel room at night, And I suppose a certain calmness takes over, and sometimes we're frightened at night and think of terrifying things. I do a little of that in the book, but um, it's also less frantic time when we can reflect. I think that's more what the book is. It's really uh, as if... Everything I've ever thought in my whole life occurred to me on one night. What a lovely concept. <laughs> so um, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm picturing the scene here. And um, you've made a, a career as a playwright out of writing life as you see it, um, sort of pushing against the idea of naturalism, of, of this, this faux natural... Uh, attitude that people often take in plays and films and really trying to capture how humans really think and really talk. Is there an element of that in this book as well? Well, this book is basically everything I think about everything. And um, I could have written it in a uh, more essayistic way, a little bit more rationally. Maybe I should have, but uh, it's full of uh, leaps that are uh, intuitive rather than strictly rational, even though if you actually read the whole book, you know, it's 75 pages long, but they're small pages. It's a very short book. If you read the whole book, it actually is a logical argument, I suppose. But uh, I can't help my years of practice as a writer of plays and a writer who 
who uses the unconscious mind a lot. I couldn't help writing even this book in a way that uh, includes irrationality. You know, in this book, which we gave a starred review to, so uh, it seems like uh, whatever your your instinct was was right. Um, you, you talk about, uh, you reflect on how the U.S. is abandoning uh, its quote, uh, cultivation of intellect. And that's something that seems to be on your mind. Well, I do think that um, many of our problems and and horrifying characteristics stem from, uh, what can I say, a lack of um, development of our minds. I mean, for example, to take a story from the day's headlines... Mm -hmm. People spent large sums of money on this uh, election in Georgia competing with each other to spend more and more money, and it ended up being the most expensive race in history. Well, money is about advertising, and uh, except for the Publishers Weekly announcement, advertising tends to be about... Uh, ludicrous forms of de deception and uh, rather transparent lying and attempts to associate things that uh, are not really connected. All of that money is spent on the assumption that the people watching the ads are not very capable of thinking or analyzing if Noam Chomsky watched either the Democratic ads or the Republican ads, he wouldn't be swayed because he could analyze these ads and see them for the nonsense that they are. So I, I think there's a tr tragic uh, lack of development of people's analytical abilities. I mean, and I sort of go into this a bit in the book. In my view, every baby that's born reasonably healthy is capable of, would have been capable of development to the point at least where they could read a newspaper and say, oh, well, I see the assumptions underlying this article and I don't agree with them or I do agree with them. I think that people are potentially bright enough to deal with our world, and yet we're conditioned to be uh, idiotic. And I feel that even artistic things help to make us smarter. And if you uh, refuse to uh, read difficult books and you refuse to listen to more difficult music, you're training yourself possibly to be stupider than you could be. And I think it's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's cruelly imposed on poor people that they are, are not trained, and then it's uh, sort of crazily imposed on the rich people by themselves, particularly in this country. And you, you say, you know, even the arts, but I would say especially the arts, though 
as someone in the business of the arts, of course, I would say that. But I, I think, you know, as as you say that, that is how we train ourselves, um, especially once we're past the age of schooling. That that's that's how you keep educating yourself. Well, I believe that, but but it's uh, you know, it's hard to prove it. You you talk about a class in the book, and and you yourself say you were lucky to be born into privilege. And I'm just uh, you say that. You, you, it's kind of like the class of the lucky. You talk about the lucky and the unlucky, um, and and you talk about like in U.S., Europe, elsewhere. There's that we owe the prosperity to the unjust exploitation of the unlucky. Can you talk a little bit more on that? Well, I suppose this has been my biography, or if there's anything interesting about me, it's uh, the fact that, uh, and it's not interesting to most people, but it's a little bit novel, far from unique. But I did eventually come to understand as a privileged person that uh, my privilege, as the word would suggest, is uh, based on the the exploitation of other people. So that uh, there are people, in other words, I live in the United States and uh, I had a quote-unquote good education here, and uh, so it would be very unlikely that I would not be eating three meals a day and living a life that uh, most people in the world would find to be privileged. And the magnificence of our industrial society is partly based on the exploitation of the poor of the past, slavery, which made very cheap raw materials that made the industrial revolution in this country uh, possible and easy and remarkable. And, of course, the murder of the original inhabitants, free land... Uh, and then the exploitation of the whole world today. I mean, we laugh at Trump going to see the Saudis and saying how much he loves them, but he is not doing anything dramatically different from every other American president. I mean, we have... There, there are people who live in that part of the world who might have liked to have a society that... Uh, looked after their own interests rather than the interests of the United States. But a lot of people all over the world get up every day and basically work to keep us in a good situation with cheap oil or what have you. And then we pay taxes to support the wars that keep the status quo in place, even though, yes, we criticize them. Somebody like myself, I criticize those wars, and some of them are probably very counterproductive and are not really benefiting me at all. I don't know, though. The general project of uh, keeping the world safe for the status quo probably has benefited me. I mean, I've been around during the whole period in which uh, 
the United States has tried to shape the entire world to its uh, needs. And uh, I suspect, even though I have protested some of the things that have gone on, I've benefited more. You know, I've gotten more out of that system than I have taken away from it, let's say. So returning back to your your theme of of intellect and of people improving upon their own if if we undertook a sort of concerted project in that direction do you think people would eventually sort of begin to educate themselves really about these these costs and these actions on a global scale and and try to shift the way that America is going or do you think we're all too comfortable well it's very very hard to give up uh, comfort. It's very hard to uh, intentionally lower your standard of living. It really is hard to give up. Uh, I mean, people who are sick and the doctor says, you know, you you can't eat ice cream anymore. They're upset. So it's not an easy thing to ask people to. Uh, diminish their standard of living but I would say because of the uh, problem of the climate the issue of justice in the world is is almost uh, going to be secondary so that yes I think rational people even cruel ones who are indifferent to the suffering of other people if they have compassion for their own grandchildren and they're rational, they're going to be in favor of pretty big changes in uh, our world. I mean, there are some people whose devotion to the status quo is, is so uh, entrenched, uh, I don't know what to say about them. I mean, Trump, for example, I don't know him personally. I just see him and you know uh, from his actions it seems that he he doesn't care that much it doesn't hurt him that much that uh, people suffer and that maybe even the suffering of his own grandchildren might not bother him I don't know or it could be that he he genuinely is intellectually confused I, I've never thought that his denial of global warming was sincere. I always assumed he just uh, cared more about, uh, you know, the profits of the oil companies or to be more generous to him, the number of jobs that people have. But now I'm sort of thinking maybe he really, his brain is scrambled in some strange way that I don't understand, and he he half believes that it's all a myth. So we're talking about economy, we're talking about class, we're talking about intellect. Uh, in at one point, you you refer to yourself as as someone who I mean, you're a successful playwright, actor, writer, as someone who is downwardly mobile. What do you mean by that? Well, I don't think people are capable of um, handling violence. I don't think people are qualified to impose violence on other people. 
if there were such a thing as as imposing violence in a fair and just way, I don't think people would be capable of it. So I sort of am thinking if the world were to change and poor people were to rise up and uh, uh, make a change on the planet, is there any way to avoid the massacre of people like myself? I think maybe we should... um, Privileged people should should weaken themselves and possibly eliminate themselves as privileged people. And so I talk a little bit in the book about my teachers in school who, interestingly, did not say to us, you must go forth and become even more privileged and do whatever you have to do to push other people out of the way. On the contrary, they sort of said, competition is really not a good thing. You should really just relax and let your grasp on these things go. And indeed, everybody that I know, including me, I know one or two exceptions, but almost everybody that I grew up with economically is on a slightly lower plane than their parents were. And socially, you could say, on a slightly lower plane. I mean, I was privileged as a kid, and then in my 20s, I I wasn't particularly privileged, except that I had friends that I could borrow from. I mean, I lived off of borrowing, and uh, then I got into being uh, an actor, and I was rather successful at that, at least in the 80s. And, uh, and every once in a while, I still get a good job. So I became a sort of privileged person for a second time, really. I mean, when I go into a building uh, that is above my station... Uh, let's say a fancy hotel that I sneak into to use the men's room, uh, I'm kicked out. Uh, There's something about me that uh, doesn't make people feel they can't throw me out. And I expect to be kicked out of places more than I really am. And uh, I suppose that is just a form of mental illness. But uh, I am definitely downward mobile in the sense that uh, neither of my parents would have been kicked out, nor nor would they have tried to sneak in anywhere. Uh, And this is true of most of the people that I grew up with. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. 
every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Wallace Shawn, author of Night Thoughts, and true to the topic of the book or the, the concept of the book, we're wandering far and wide. <laughs> uh, you mentioned taking intuitive leaps in, in the book. Do you have any that were, that were particular favorites that kind of tickled you and you went, oh, oh, this is a good one. I love this one. Uh, no, I don't mean to make intuitive leaps. I, I actually set out to be pretty logical in the structure of the book but it it um, i'm trying to tell a few stories simultaneously one on top of the other and i'm trying to uh express the best way that i know how you know basically my conclusions about the world uh, not on the assumption that I will necessarily uh, die or be senile next week, but it could, it gets more likely every week, let's put it that way. So it ended up being the case that I, I had to uh, make some, I had to make some, I had to leave it to the reader to, to uh, piece it all together which is sort of my preference anyway. Like the, I mean, even in writing plays, the audience in my plays, if there are any, they, they, they have to, they have a big role to play. They have to uh, put things together. One of the things you mentioned earlier uh, about the... Uh, uh, challenges of, of music rising to more maybe complex or uh, intellectually stimulating music. And you write about Beethoven. What, what does Beethoven do for you? <laughs> well, I mean, I, for me, it's, uh, it's tragic that uh, everybody doesn't listen to classical music because I think everybody is very capable of uh, enjoying classical music and yet a tremendous number of people in all classes consider that it's out of range for them. Well, Beethoven is uh, I suppose I don't know, the most experimental of composers and uh, maybe wrote the most beautiful music at times but also sort of uh, experimented with ugliness uh, in a remarkable way and uh, with uh, shock, you know, doing things that, uh, let's say he was very courageous and uh, opened up an awful lot of possibilities. And his music is, uh, I don't know, very... His his quartets, I mean, from the early ones to the late ones, are an expression of uh, human possibility that uh, couldn't help uh, making any listener a wiser person. And it's, uh, yeah, it's kind of heartbreaking that uh, only a handful of people actually ever listen to this stuff. Mm. It sounds like it has that same 
philosophy as yours in a way that it makes the audience work for it. Well, yes. I mean, Beethoven was probably, uh, you know, one of the early, early people who, who had a slightly more, slightly aggressive attitude toward an audience and sort of felt uh, that it was up to them to come halfway. What role does playwriting play in your life? I mean, you, you've you written a book, you've acted, but your most recent book was Evening at the Talk House. Right. Uh, well, that's a play. It's been published as a book right. by TCG Books. I mean, basically, I write plays because I enjoy doing that, and I can get away with it, and I haven't been too uh, discouraged to quit. I mean, it's what I think of if I have to give myself an identity, which I don't really, but uh, I suppose if you woke me up in the middle of the night and asked what, you know, what, what do you do? I would say I'm a playwright. I have been writing plays. Maybe I'm breaking the illusion of your listeners that the guy they're listening to is 25 years old. I've actually been writing plays for 50 years and well I sort of believe in my plays in a sort of ignorant way I mean you know obviously uh, after I'm dead maybe somebody will pass a definitive judgment on them I believe in them and uh, a certain number of other people a few also do and others think they're, well, worthless in a way. So I haven't had the uh, kind of validation as a playwright that, uh, let's say, I don't know, Harold Pinter had. But I have a theater obsession, and I have for a very, very long time, I mean, which even includes going to see plays more than a normal person would. I really enjoy watching the actors act, even if it isn't a play that I particularly connect with, to use the type of language people would use in the theater. I mean, I I have a theater obsession, and I I enjoy writing plays. And yes, I mean, I feel if I were empowered anonymously to defend my plays and say why they had value. I could give a lecture on that topic, but you know, that's not for me to to say. And you got into acting from playwriting that you you wanted to understand the the actors side of things. You sort of stumbled into it accidentally. Well, I studied it a little bit. I mean, I'm I am a fake actor. I have not studied, you know, the way, well, the way I would have wanted to if I thought I was going to do it professionally. You know, I would have learned how to fence and lose speech <laughs> impediments and all the rest of it. But didn't I never thought that I would be a professional actor? But I did study a little bit, just a little bit. Uh, I didn't go to a, you know, a Juilliard or NYU. I, I 
spent several months at the wonderful HB studio on Bank Street in New York, where pretty much anybody can go and uh, study Mm -hmm. acting. You can go, you know, one night a week, or I sort of went full-time for a few months, and uh, then I forgot about it for many years, and then uh, mysteriously, through writing plays, I got put in one, uh, and uh, in the, you know, the the years between, say, 20, I was 20, between being 24 and 35, I didn't have any real plan for making a living. I hadn't really even formulated the idea that I wanted to be a bourgeois person and lead a bourgeois lifestyle. I just sort of did various jobs of different kinds, uh, and I borrowed a lot of money. And then uh, when I was put in this play, I almost immediately got put into the movies and actually... Well, that was the peak of my career as an actor was at the beginning. I mean, I was paid, you know, within, say, five years of becoming an actor, I was probably paid, say, five times more for an hour than I'm worth today as an actor. Those were the really good days. I paid back my debts. And th- but then I stuck with it, and I even became ambitious as an actor and wanted to, uh, you know, do more. What's it been like for you being a, a sort of nerd cult figure uh, from your work in The Princess Bride and Star Trek and the, these um, sort of fantastical productions um, that feel fairly divorced from the New York playwriting life? I mean, I can't really... Uh, explain it i mean it it i'm not a big believer in the self that there is a unified creature at the center of one's body i don't know maybe there's more than one or i'm confused by the topic i've written about it maybe because of my odd life i'm more confused than some other people. Yes, I mean, uh, people come up to me on the street and say, you're that guy defining my identity, but not in the way that I would. They do recognize me. I mean, it's it's me, apparently. Uh, so I can't say to them, well, no. I'm not that guy. I'm a different guy. That would be insane, literally. I mean, being an actor is strange anyway, because you... Well, I suppose it isn't strange if you believe... I don't know what English actors used to believe. I don't think English actors even believe this anymore, that you... uh, It isn't you. You're impersonating a character. And supposedly, you know, Laurence Olivier would would first take out makeup and change the shape of his nose 
and he would say, well, this, you know, I, I think this character has this kind of nose and I'm going to give him this kind of voice and this kind of a walk. But most actors I know don't do that, English or American. It's us, really. Uh, I mean, and in my case, in a way, being a kind of fake actor who really never studied and doesn't know what actors do, it's nothing else but me with these different circumstances. So, you know, the TV show The Good Wife, I played a sort of, well, a criminal, really, who was threatening people and uh, was uh, quite frightening, although... I had a friendly personality when I was threatening them. But basically, it was just, well, if if these were my circumstances, I didn't even think about it, you know. I mean, because there's a, there's a limited amount of thinking that I'm capable of doing or that I want to do when I'm trying to play a part. And uh, I just sort of, it was me. But instead of being a playwright, I was a guy who threatened to kill people. If they, I mean, for instance, witnesses who were, my boss didn't want to appear in court. So you just, you put yourself in those shoes. Because I actually believe that that could be me. And, uh, well, I know it could be. And, you know, I've had circumstances where I've, uh, you know, I've done, I've had an easy time without, uh, you know, being involved in the underworld. Uh, But, uh, you know, I know that I would be capable of of that. And uh, this is in a way comes into the book as well because I think we all I mean acting is is a very interesting way of exploring some of the things that you're capable of and uh, I do think we are all capable of wisdom on the one hand and uh, cruelty, violence sadism on the other, and uh, of course, nations are capable of these things too, large agglomerations of people, and uh, so the whole question is how how can we uh, bring the better part of ourselves to the front? And uh, Avoid being destroyed by the the destructive part of ourselves, which, and I think what one of the things I talk about in the book is that when I was growing up, people assumed the best about uh, human beings and particularly Americans. Everybody just sort of thought, wow, humans are great and Americans are absolutely delightful. 
and now we've seen that these things are you know not not true i mean this is speaking of americans obviously europeans were not going around in the 1940s when i was born and saying wow human beings are great they were asking the right questions i mean they were saying we're not great and how can we protect ourselves from ourselves We've been talking with Wallace Shawn. You can find his book, Night Thoughts, in stores right now. Wallace, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Senior Editor Peter Cannon talks about the fall highlights and mystery and thrillers. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Kim Phillips-Fine, the author of Fear City, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today PW Senior Editor Peter Cannon is here to tell us all about PW's upcoming mystery and thriller feature. Hello, Peter. Hello, Mark. So what do you have? So we've been putting together, each of us editors has had a section or two uh, books that we've compiled the uh, the long list of about 50 titles. And then uh, from that selected our top 10 books, um, books that either may be big sellers or that we ourselves think will be uh, notable in the coming season. Fall. So uh, you've been at the helm of the mystery thriller. What do we got to start with? We have Artemis by Andy Weir, author of The Martian. This is the uh, highly anticipated sequel, uh, which is uh, likewise set in outer space, but it's on the moon. Uh Uh, Artemis is the name of the first and only city on the moon. Mm. And from the description, I gather it it involves um, a worker who's a lowly porter, getting involved in some illegal smuggling or other nefarious activities. At any rate, based on the success of The Martian, which was also, of course, a hit movie, I think we have good reason to have high expectations for this next, next book. Absolutely. It's kind of remarkable to me that we can, we can genuinely say a book set on the moon is, is a thriller and not science fiction. But um, he writes it very, very plausibly, very realistically, as though it could happen tomorrow. Right. Well, you could call it a science fiction thriller. And Just, what, what else is on your list? Well... Stephen King and his son Owen King are collaborating on a book that you might call a supernatural thriller. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a broad category. Now, Owen, I believe, writes mainstream literary uh, fiction. You know, his other son, Joe Hill, write, writes uh, in the horror and, you know, supernatural thriller genre. So this appears to be a kind of hybrid. As far as the plot goes, it involves uh, uh, women who fall asleep and enter some sort of strange land, and the men left behind are uh, finding themselves at a loss with without their women. That's as, about as much as I can say about <laughs> that, that one, but it cer- certainly sounds intriguing. Next up, uh, Nelson DeMille, a big best-selling thriller author has uh, what appears to be a standalone but could be a series called The Cuban Affair. Uh, Very topical about a uh, U.S. Army veteran turned Key West fishing boat captain who agrees to run a charter to Cuba 
where, of course, a femme fatale gets him into lots of trouble. Anyway, there are a lot of uh, DeMille fans who are very much uh, looking forward to that one. Absolutely. Mm. Another major author, perhaps the biggest author in the spy genre, is John le Carré. He has a title coming out, A Legacy of Spies. That's a sequel to uh, his earlier books in the uh, uh, George Smiley series. Mm. You know, the spy who came in from the cold, Tinker Taylor Spy. And this this is the first such book in you know, a couple of decades. That's a big deal. And that involves a colleague of Smiley's, a retired spy uh, who has something in his Cold War past to cover up. And you can imagine the complications uh, go on from there. Right. So it's set in the present day. It's set in the present day, but it, it harks back to to the Cold War era. Now... I have to mention at least one female author here, and this this is um, actually a first novel by uh, an Irish author named Liz Nugent. It's called Unraveling Oliver. Now, the title character is a successful children's book author, and for some unknown reason, he assaults his devoted wife, Alice, one evening at their home after dinner, leaving her in a coma. And... Apparently, the plot is about why did he do such a thing? Now, it's won awards in Ireland, and the author has been compared to Patricia Highsmith. Hmm. I noticed it was played up at recent book expo. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yes, that's another one. Keep, keep, Keep your eye on. Now, we also have books from the usual bestsellers who produce a book a year, such as Jack, uh, excuse me, Lee Child, another Jack Reacher, Louise Penny with another Inspector Gamache right. uh, of the uh, uh, Quebec Surete, and also an interesting um, first series, uh, a series launch from Attica Locke, uh, which is um, Bluebird, Bluebird about a black Texas ranger who, uh, in a small Texas town, gets involved in a double murder involving a black lawyer from Chicago and a local white woman, and he must solve the crime and deal with you know, his, his own past and uh, conflicted feelings about being a, a black cop you know in, in a white world uh, so that is another uh, timely book uh, we we have a profile of Attica Locke running in uh, another issue or two perhaps the biggest book I'd like to talk about at least personally it's the one that's uh, most exciting for me is uh, Jason Matthews the Kremlin's candidate this is the third and final book in the trilogy that began with Red Sparrow. Now, Jason Matthews, I should explain, is a retired CIA agent. He spent, I don't know, I don't know something like 30 years uh, in the agency, and he has put his uh, expertise to good use in this series about a, 
an American uh, CIA agent, uh, male, who becomes involved with a Russian female spy mm-hmm. who's the uh, Red Sparrow of the title of the, the, the first book. Now, this one is unusual in that it was announced, I believe, to appear this summer, and then suddenly it was postponed. And the plot description ran something like uh, a female candidate for U.S. president gets into trouble because her husband has these shady financial ties to the Kremlin. Uh huh. You know, how topical right. is that? Right. Well, uh, all of a sudden it was no longer on the list. And eventually I heard from the publicist that it had been postponed. And the latest word is that it will be coming out in February. Now, from what I've uh, read of the descriptions of the Kremlin's candidate, I haven't seen any of that you know, presidential candidate with spouse and financial ties to the Kremlin. And I'm wondering if there's possibly been a little rewriting, mm-hmm. revising, I'm not sure, or, or maybe they've, they're saving that for you know, down the line for a you know, fourth book. I, I just don't know, but I am very curious to, to find out. And the release of The Kremlin's Candidate in February will coincide with the uh, premiere of the movie based on Red Sparrow, mm. uh, starring Jennifer, Jennifer Lawrence. Wow. So, um, yeah, that's, that, that's the book I'm most excited about. And one more personal anecdote. Last year, when my family and I were in Washington, D.C., and visiting the Spy Museum, they have a shop with a substantial book section. And there was a table of books recommended by uh, those who work within the agency. And Jason Matthews, books were were in that section with with a little blurb saying, you know, this this is this is the real thing hmm. by this book. Interesting. Well it it certainly sounds like um the the election results from last fall have had some shockwaves in the espionage thriller world just as they have I've certainly seen similar things happening in the the near future science fiction world as people are kind of scrambling to figure out what possible futures come from our unexpected present so uh, it it sounds like there's going to be some some similar concerns happening I I imagine yes we'll be seeing thrillers with uh, you know clear influences of you know the, the, the current political situation well, Peter, thank you so much for coming in and telling us about those fall highlights of the mystery and thriller category. It's always great to have you on the show. My pleasure. And now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com.
And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. And you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another exciting author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 